Good morning, church. I uh, hope you're feeling well today. We're not long to go, really, before we start meeting back together. So just keep an eye out for some announcements that we'll be making about uh, getting together in the park and a few other events as well. So today we're up to part six of our series, Where's Jesus? And the question I'm really asking today is, what kind of worshipper are you? There are many types of worship and different ways, different styles of worship, different degrees, if you like, of levels of worship that people use to express their love and gratitude to God for all he's done for them. Um, I was looking at a comedian called Tim Hawkins and he explains that in his church they've got different degrees of, of worship um, by how high your hands go. He talks about one one guy carrying the TV or the broad TV or the... You know, how big's my fish, or if you're an exaggerator, it's a bit bigger, or, um, you know, do you want to hold my baby, or there's the goalposts, or the, or there's the heartburn, or there's wash the window, or, you know, all those sorts of different styles. I'm more of a, well, I didn't take it, sort of, uh, worshipper. But there is a particular kind of worshipper that the Father is actually seeking, and it really has nothing to do with the degree of where your hands sit. So today we're going to look at what is the kind of worshipper that the Father seeks and why does he do that? So let's, um, if you've got your Bibles, let's have a look at our text for the week in John chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you might want to underline some of the key words that you, that pop out for you. You know, we bought my dad an iPad the other day, gave him an iPad for him to use to read the Bible and uh, I went back the week later and uh, there was black marks all over it. I said, what's, what's happening? He said, oh, it doesn't work. So, you know, don't underline your iPad if you've got an iPad. Just underline the key points of the Bible. So let's read the text, John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize. The disciples did. And so he left Judea and returned to Galilee. And what we learned last week is about the Pharisees. If you haven't watched last week's uh, part five, 
I encourage you to go back and have a look about that. It will teach us a little bit, helps to understand a little bit more about the Pharisees and their relationship with Jesus. I find this verse interesting because to me this is about um, what Jesus Jesus saying, making a statement, saying I didn't actually come to try and convince the Pharisees that I'm the Messiah. And so he didn't spend all his time in debate with them. Uh, he, it says here that um, he left this place and he returned to, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. On the map you can see that the journey they had to take goes from Judea uh, from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee which is a distance of about 123 kilometres and I looked it up on our Google, ma Google Maps and that's about from Corrigan Heights to Bathurst it's quite a walk and as I was thinking about what they would discuss on the walk I'm sure that there would have been many discussions that were uh, worthy of recording but uh, they couldn't record all the things John says that were actually discussed and so this story here in John chapter 4 is a significant enough story for John to actually say this is what my readers need to know. This is an important story and I want to include it in my gospel. So verse 4, he had to go through Samaria on the way to Galilee and eventually they came to the Samaritan village of Sychar. And Sychar looks as though it's about halfway between Judea and the Sea of Galilee. And Sychar is near a field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph and Jacob actually sunk a well there. It's also the place that Abraham stopped on his journey from Ur when he first arrived in Canaan and he, he, the Lord appeared to him and he made him a promise about the land that he was about to give to him and so Abraham erected an altar and he dedicated it to God on Mount Gerizim It's found in Genesis chapter 12 verse 6. Asika was also the place that Joseph was sold into slavery and he was also buried there along with his fathers at his request. It was also the place that Moses broke the two tribes into two groups and one stood up at Mount Gerizim and one at Mount Ebal and in Deuteronomy 27 one group read out the blessings that would come for obeying the word of God and the other group would read out the curses that would um, associate for disobeying the word of God. So it's fair to say that this place, this, this location for Israel had a very significant spiritual heritage attached to it. If you look at the map you see that Jacob's well is situated right between these two mountains. So knowing what we know about Jesus it would be fair to say that stopping at this place was really part, it wasn't a fluke, it was part of a bigger plan. So verse 6 Jesus, tired from the walk, sat wearily beside Jacob's well about noontime. And soon a Samaritan woman came to the well, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews to ref refuse to have anything to do with the Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Here they are in the middle of Israel and there are two groups of people not talking to one another. There's the Jews and the Samaritans. And why is that? After, after Solomon died in 910 BC, the nation of Israel was split into two groups. Basically because they refused, they went to Solomon, um, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and said, please reduce the taxes. And he said, no, 
and so they had a big revolt and uh, Jeroboam if you remember uh, come out of um, exile in Egypt and they appointed him as ruler over the ten northern tribes and Rehoboam then took control of one tribe, the tribe of Judah and finally the northern tribe because of their disobedience to God uh, was taken into exile by Assyria in 721 and the Assyrians allowed Israel to actually stay on the land and work it but they intermarried with the Assyrians so despite all of this the, the tribe continued to call themselves uh, Ben Israel or children of Israel or Shamrim which means observant ones because they only recognised the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. They obviously didn't uh, recognise anything that come from the tribe of Judah, the stories of Samuel and David. And so in those stories we read that um, David set up the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and so they didn't recognise that, that the temple in Jerusalem was where God should be worshipped. It was this place, this spiritual place that... Um, their forefathers had established uh, altars on and been buried on and had law read and all of those sorts of things. And so there was obviously this tension going on between uh, the northern tribe still and the southern tribe, tribe of Judah. And this made the tension, if you like, between uh, the, on this road between uh, Judah and, and, Gal and the Sea of Galilee uh, quite a dangerous journey to take because there were all sorts of, uh, if you're a Jew and you're going on this journey, you could be quite easily mugged or robbed, um, even left for dead on the side of the road. Hence the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan, which didn't really make sense to the, the Pharisees. How could a Samaritan be good in their eyes? How could Jesus dare use this guy as an example of how we should uh, treat one another? It was a bit of an oxymoron for them. So it's fair to say that these two tribes really had a long history, a thousand, almost a thousand years of hatred for one another. And so it was quite a surprise for this woman to be approached by this man at a well and ask for a drink. Verse 10, Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. The, the well is still there today and it's apparently it's about 40 metres deep so it's, it's quite deep. Um, verse 11, where would you get this living water? Besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Verse 13, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And we'll see in the coming chapters that what Jesus is referring to in terms of this water is actually the Holy Spirit who actually comes bubbling up within us and gives us a fresh spring each day. Verse 15. Please, sir, the woman said, give me some of this water and then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get some water. I'm not sure what she's saying here. I think it's a bit of sarcasm that's coming from her. But she's obviously not understanding who Jesus is and what he's really offering. So what Jesus does next is actually help her understand who he is and what he's offering. Jesus could have done a miracle. He could have filled up the jug of water and without lowering her just appeared 
full of water or he you know, could have done his old trick of uh, made the well actually full of wine and uh, when they wind the, the bucket up it would be full of wine. I mean I've never heard anyone say stop we've got too much wine it's just never been said. Um, it would be like the first beer on tap except it would be you know whining well and people would come for miles and to, to get this sort of stuff eventually they built a church over the the Jacob's well and you can imagine going there for communion and actually you know having your wine straight out of the well it would become a, obviously an attraction so Jesus didn't do that so Jesus really could have done anything to demonstrate who he was in terms of being the Messiah but what he chose is very interesting he chose to reveal himself as a prophet so how did Jesus do that Go and get your husband, Jesus replied to her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly have spoken the truth. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim that it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it is here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. Obviously what Jesus is saying here is that the place of worship is not as important as the content of worship. True worshippers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So why did Jesus, why was it important for Jesus to make it known that he was actually a prophet? By pointing out that Jesus is a prophet, he's actually aligning himself with all of the prophets in the Old Testament. And so when this woman understood about uh, the prophet, she would have understood about these prophets like Moses and Abraham who actually spoke, who were filled with the Spirit of God and spoke the Word of God. And Jesus was, in a sense, in, in terms of our series, uh, in Where's Jesus?, Jesus was aligning himself with all of these prophets. And each one of these prophets is actually representing what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit and the Word of God. And in a sense, each one of those is actually representing Jesus. And Jesus, we're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. We could look at each one of these prophets and each one of them have a characteristic of Jesus in them. That is, they're filled with the Spirit and they speak the Word of God. Because there's this inseparable connection between the Spirit and the Word of God. So, for example, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, David says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me, and his words are on my tongue. Or Micah, prophet, says in chapter 3, verse 8, But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. I'm filled with justice and strength to boldly declare Israel's sin and rebellion. Or Isaiah the prophet, uh, 59 verse 21, says, And this is the covenant I will make with them, says the Lord. My spirit will not leave them, and neither will these words I have given you. They will be on your lips, 
and on the lips of your children and your children's children forever, I the Lord have spoken. So the kind of worshipper that the Father seeks, the ones he's looking for, are those who worship in both the Spirit and the Word of God. So what does it mean to worship in the Spirit? We'll look at what it means to be obedient to the Word later on. But what does it mean to worship in the Spirit? There seems to be a bit of confusion about that, or has been over the time, over the years. Ruach is a Hebrew word, and it is used to explain the word, the English word for spirit. And the English interpretation of the spirit really misses an important, important aspect of ruach. Ruach means breath, but it's more than just breath. It's more than just breathing. It's not the wind that makes the ruach. It's what the wind conveys. The wind can convey emotion or sympathy or it can convey love or relaxation or enjoyment. It can um, mean, ruach can mean smell. It can mean delight or understanding. All of these things are conveyed when we breathe out a sigh, if you like. And ruach is also used for the word smell, as I said before. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, it says that the Lord was pleased with the ruach or the smell or the aroma of the sacrifice. And it was far more than the, the smell, the action of breathing in or out. It's about the delight. He, was, he took delight in the smell or the enjoyment um, that was being put off. But he also says in Amos chapter 5 that he's actually put off by the stench of their sacrifice as well. Amos chapter 5 verse 21 says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. Verse 22, I will not accept, I will not smell, I will not ruach your burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So the role of a prophet, it wasn't easy. These guys actually put themselves in very uh, difficult positions. They actually had to reprimand kings uh, who were doing the wrong thing. They spoke on behalf of the priests. They announced judgment on all the people. A lot, a lot of these guys were hated severely. They were stoned and sawn in two and all sorts of things. But in the midst of it all, what these prophets were actually doing were representing the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and they were actually acting on God's, acting out God's justice and His mercy. They felt the feelings of God, if you like. They spoke with the passion that God would speak. They spoke on behalf of the heart of God. So when Jesus was announcing to this woman that He was a prophet, He was announcing that the the arrival of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is here. And she understood very clearly that Jesus was not just saying that he was a prophet, but that he was the prophet. Because she makes the jump to the next step saying, Sir, I understand that you are the Messiah. So what Jesus was saying to this woman was that the prophets are filled with the Spirit and the Word of God. And like roving prophets, it wasn't about the place. It wasn't about what they did. It was about who they were, it was about their content, it was about their relationship with God. Both the men and women were moved with passion, the passion of God. Their spirit was sympathised with God and they aligned with the spirit of God. 
Friends, these prophets were the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. They are the ones who worship in spirit and in truth. And worship is not an act. It's not like I was doing before with raising your hands. It's not about the place of worship. It's not about how high the steeple is that you go to, what church you go to. It's not about how big the auditorium or how big the congregation. It's not about the style of music. It's not about what you get out of church. Worship is not about gaining more knowledge. It's actually implementing that knowledge of what we know about God. It's engaging with God. It's all about your heart. It's all about your connection with God. Worship in the Spirit is about connecting your spirit to God's Spirit. It's, it's about a feeling. It's about passion. It's about love. Worship is demonstrating justice and mercy. Worship is about living righteously. Worship is about offering yourself as a living sacrifice that fills the air with an aroma of Christ. Are you the kind of worshipper that the Father seeks? Are you one whose fragrance actually delights the heart of God? Now let's pray together. Father, I just want to thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us. We thank you that you've made it possible for us to have a relationship with you. And Father, we often get this relationship wrong and we, we put on uh, airs and graces and we act as though we're more righteous than we are, much like the Pharisees. And so today we lay down our lives as living sacrifices on an altar that are burnt away and that the aroma of our life actually is pleasing to you. We pray that you would fill our lives with your spirit, that our, our life would just exude who you are as people meet us, that they would smell Christ in us and on us. Father, I pray that um, you just be with each one today, each person that's hearing this message, that your, your spirit would visit them, that it would comfort them, that you'd feel, they would feel your love and your, your presence with them this morning. I pray, Lord, if they're sick, that you actually bring healing to their body. If they're, if they're struggling, ment struggling mentally, that, Lord, you'd, you'd help us become stronger in our mental health as well. So, Lord, I just pray for each person that hears this message, that we would understand that you are actually seeking our worship, our life. Father, we offer our lives to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, church. We'll see you all soon. You bring peace.